Welcome to another new episode of Queering Desi. This is your host, Priya. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with Vivek Shwaya, one of my all-time favorite queer artists. She's an amazing singer, filmmaker, and writer. We talk about her journey from her first book of poetry, Even This Page is White, all the way through her latest album, Part-Time Woman. Vivek is one of those people that's humble and grounded and a delight to talk to, but it was also a great conversation about the intersections of gender and race. So without much further ado, here's Vivek. Welcome to Queering Desi, Vivek. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. I have been such a big fan of yours for a long time, so this is kind of a surreal experience <coughs> for me. I figure that I should get that out of the way and get all the nerves out of the way. That's really sweet. Well, I, like I said, I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, you've done such a breadth of work. And obviously, in anticipation of this conversation, I kind of revisited a lot of the things that impacted me that you've done. And there's so much to talk about. But I'll start out with like where I was first exposed to your work, which is sure. this page is white. It was just such a groundbreaking poetry collection that I felt spoke to. Well, it spoke to me, but I think it spoke to a lot of folks and, and said a lot of things that we don't often talk about. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and a little bit about your message in that. Sure. Wow. And thanks for that. I really appreciate hearing that. I, um, I mean, essentially I really wanted to discuss, uh, my relationship to racism and white supremacy. I think so much of my twenties was, I mean, not that you can separate queerness from race, um, but I think so much of my 20s was really tied to unpacking homophobia and genderphobia that a lot of my experiences of racism and my reflections on racism had sort of gotten sidelined. And again, it's hard to draw lines there because I think my experiences of homophobia have always been tied to racism. But um, coming into my thirties, I, I felt angry and I had a lot that I wanted to say specifically about, um, white supremacy, you know, not just as, you know, a South Asian, as a Brown person, but also as a Brown artist that has navigated systemic, you know, racism in a variety of different industries. And, Again, I don't think it was until my 30s that I really realized that it was largely race. It was largely my race that was, or it was largely racism, I should say, that um, was impacting my career. And so I turned to poetry because I really liked that in poetry, you didn't have to provide an answer. Um, you don't have to provide you know, a beginning or a middle or end. Unlike a novel, there's sort of like an emphasis on resolution but in poetry you can ask really like challenging questions without necessarily having answers and the truth is um i don't have answers <laughs> about white supremacy so yeah for me that was sort of one of the reasons why poetry really appealed to me and then poetry also became a really important vehicle for me to examine my not only my my experiences of racism but the ways that i have like upheld white supremacy, whether it's through my relationship to anti-blackness, um, whether it's, you know, my relationship to anti-indigeneity, um, whether it's, you know, me having 
a white boyfriend. Um, poetry really allowed me to sort of like dig into those nuances as well, because I think that, you know, it's easy for us to be angry at white people and whiteness, but so much of the work that I really think that needs to happen is, uh, you know, the self-reflection and the, the conversations around complicity. And so again, I felt like poetry really allowed me to do that. Yeah. And some of the things you talked about in that were, were, I mean, almost all of it, I think it was meant to be this way, but was really like discomforting. And I think like, you're right. Some of those conversations that need to happen, like happen in the area of that discomfort, right? Like if we don't call it out or call it what it is or talk about what that experience is like being in a room with white people or, you know, like Oscar's so white and seeing these things kind of develop and then call them out on it in that way. It, and we don't get uncomfortable, then we're not even able to to address it and, and maybe at some point, like, correct that, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah. And I wonder like now, you know, it's, it's been a few years in terms of white supremacy. I have two questions actually about this, but one is like kind of in the current climate, what would you looking back on even this page is white and like just the kind of things that you touched upon and, and continue to touch upon in your work and your art. What do you think of like now? Like, what do you think? How do you think that conversation has evolved or not evolved? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think about this a lot, actually, you know, one of the challenges I faced around even this page is white was actually the title and some of this was self-imposed but some of this also loosely came from my publisher where you know we had conversations about is it better to draw the reader in with something a little bit more innocuous as opposed to something that's a little bit more aggressive and, and in your face and and by the reader we we know that what we're talking about here is the white reader right like you know i think a lot of like the reaction from from brown people on my social media when I announced the title of my book, they were just like, yes. Uh, <laughs> so I think it was more thinking about, I mean, the reality is I make art in Canada and, um, you know, uh, the large sort of book buying audience out here um, is, is white, right? And so I think that there was uh, a lot of, yeah, conversation around the title. And for me, I also... I worried about it um, sounding whiny or something. So anyways, it's really funny for me to look back now on the title. And I think one of the things that surprises me is how commonplace naming whiteness has become in the past two years. Like two years ago, naming whiteness wasn't new, but there was still such a discomfort around it to the point that, you know, I consider not naming my book, even this page is white. Whereas now, you know, I'll be at events or panels where, you know, white authors or artists will name their whiteness. And I remember maybe a year ago being really moved by this and being like, yes, change, change is happening. And now a year later, so two years since even this page is white, I actually feel very cynical about it. And I'm, I'm actually really disturbed by the ways that whiteness has an ability to always sort of usurp the language of the oppressed and like, like essentially outsmart us. Right. You know, like the conversation for me around even this page is white. So much of it, any of the conversation in that book that was directed at white people was about naming your whiteness and guess what? Now they're doing it. And somehow it feels more dangerous because it almost just like rolls off their tongue, you know, like the way they say they're like, you know, as a white ally, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, 
you know, like it just feels performative. Right. So I think for me, that's one of the things I think about a lot is, you know, about being very careful about what we're demanding and what we're asking because the oppressor is smart. And the reason why white supremacy will continue to dominate is because of its ability to mutate and to, yeah, essentially sort of take what we're saying and, and get one step ahead. So uh, you know, to answer your question, uh, I think a lot about like, well, how do we outsmart the oppressor? And I, I don't know that I have an answer for that. Um, aside from, you know, saying the things that I'm saying to you right now. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you know, the the climate in America has been a lot different in the last couple of years. So I think about this stuff often. And I think about kind of what you're saying, like the naming of it is so kind of staunch. And I think it took us all by surprise that suddenly like neo-Nazis are holding rallies in our own country, like out in the open. And and the, the truth is, is that it was just hidden for a long time. And we like to pretend and be surprised of like, where did this come from? But it's, totally. it's not new, you know? No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think about, you're, you're talking about how, queerness is not you can't kind of separate that from race can you talk a little bit more about what you mean and how your identities all of them or many of them kind of intersect with race and intersect and and transform into the art that you do well i mean you know i'll never forget my first experience going to the gay bar in edmonton and just how brown i felt in that space um for our american listeners i always try to clarify that Edmonton's like in a city in a province called Alberta, which is kind of like the Texas of Canada. So imagine 80s and 90s, brown, you know, queer kid going to a gay bar in like, you know, Dallas of Canada, essentially. (laughs) And yeah, I learned very quickly that my skin color really amplified my, my difference. And so I had both the experience of being exotified, like so many of us, but also being invisible simultaneously. So actually, my first short film, Seeking Single White Male, sort of explores this experience. But I think for me, the thing that's always been shocking about queer community has been the ways in which marginalized people oppress other marginalized people. I think I always had this idea that like, you know, we're marginalized. So we have experienced this form of oppression or, or whatever. So we would never do this. We would never oppress another group of people. But like, you know, my experiences of racism, biphobia, transphobia have often existed most profoundly and most prominently in, in queer spaces. Yeah, I mean, that's not surprising. I guess I'll say it's, I think it happens a lot, definitely in the mainstream, like white LGBT context, it definitely happens. And I I resonate with that. But I think it's also been hard for me as you're talking to hear like, that it also happens like within multiply marginalized communities, you know, you think that totally, totally, yeah, you think that this is going to be like a a safer space or that, like you said, like, because we've been oppressed, we're not going to do that to someone else. But can you talk a little bit about kind of within the the South Asian even context or in that cultural context, like biphobia and transphobia still within the LGBT context for our for our communities is, is so rampant and so difficult to talk about for folks. I mean, have you faced that? And, and what are your thoughts on that? And, and I mean, how can then community and allies kind of build around that and work to bridge the gap on that? 
I mean, this is a tricky question, mostly because I, you know, the sad truth is I feel very disconnected from South Asian communities. You know, I moved to Toronto sort of like a couple years after the glory years of like South Asian queer organizing, and it never recovered really after that. And so I've never really felt like a deep sort of connection to South Asian communities beyond my childhood communities that my parents sort of like enforced us to be part of. So, you know, I have like pockets of South Asian friends, but they, if they're not queer, they're very much allies. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly aware that like homophobia, biphobia and transphobia exist within South Asian communities, but because of my experience, it's not something that I feel really equipped to speak to. I mean, the like my experience as a kid too is in some ways a lot different in that like the experience of Hinduism that I grew up with actually was one of the only like safe spaces for me as a gender nonconforming like kid that like, you know, had female friends and, you know, liked to sing and dance. These were all things in my community, my South Asian and religious communities that were seen as like special and as like holy and so if anything, like my experience of South Asian communities have been like actually very supportive, at least in my childhood of my gender nonconformity and my queerness. So, yeah, it's a, it is a tricky question for me to answer. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I think what resonates for me, though, is is you've done so much work, but like Boy in the Bindi and She of the Mountains, like you touch upon just that the multidimensionality of some of these identities, right? Like for me going into a South Asian space that is maybe not fully supportive or not, you know, queer friendly or trans friendly, like going in there as like a gender nonconforming person, it can be really like hard to latch on to like one side of me versus another versus yes. even like yes. white LGBT spaces or South Asian LGBT spaces. And like, it, it kind of frustrates me that we have to do the work of like assessing the spaces that we go into. And I know you talk about like safety and so much of like how the the world kind of perceives us. But I think about that a lot in terms of just even cultural spaces of like, it's a lot of work to be like, okay, now I'm going to my job. And then now I'm going to like my therapist's office. And then now I'm going to like this other space. And then how am I going to be perceived in all of these spaces? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I relate to that for sure. I also wanted to talk about, I mean, you're a great, great singer, but when you talk about like some of your breadth of work, Part-Time Woman, your most recent album, I loved all of it, honestly, but I the one that resonated with me most was Brown Girls, and I felt like it spoke to me in a way that we don't often uplift one another in the community. Like when you talk about kind of as an oppressed group bringing down like other marginalized groups, yes. like the way that I think like your work speaks to like how we can try to like call it out and, and work to like address those things is to like uplift one another. Can you talk a little bit about part-time women and Brown girls and, and some of that, that work? Yeah. So part-time woman is an album I put out last year with an orchestra in Toronto called queer songbook orchestra. And I wrote it the year I came out as trans and I so I thought a lot about, you know, I think so much of LGTB narratives end up being focused on, you know, coming out. And, but sometimes what gets lost is the post coming out narratives. And so in some ways I see part of the time woman as being like 
everything that happens after, which is like, you know, the, the constant, the continued fear of men or, you know, looking to other trans girls for representation and self-identification. And then certainly with brown girls, one of the things I noticed, and this sort of actually counters the thing that I, the answer I just gave you, but um, I noticed that the the people that seemed most resistant, either consciously or subconsciously to my pronouns were South Asian women. And I, and consequently it hurt me more than any other sort of like pronoun mix-ups because, you know, hypothetically, we're supposed to be sisters or connected in this way. And so I really wanted to, yeah, sort of write something that spoke to the fact that like, I, A, love brown women. Brown women are, you know, my heroes, you know, going back all the way to my mom. And, but also I think that there are ways that like brown feminine people, because of the ways that we internalize misogyny and racism, we end up being like really mean to each other. And I think like, you know, having conversations with other Brown women, it's been fascinating to, yeah, just to discover how, how hard and challenging it is to have friends, like friendships with other Brown women, because there's Mm -hmm. this like undercurrent of like animosity or competitiveness. And so I just sort of like in the song too, like, I just sort of like, I'm very vocal, right? Like I am like, don't hide your hairy, don't hide your beauty and don't be hard on me or, you know, don't hide your ambitions. I'm not your competition. Don't be hard on me. Right. Like it's, it's very much a love letter to Brown women, but it's also a plea to be like, you know, the sister I've always wanted is, is you. And I've always been one of you, you know, so we don't need to create like this barrier, you know? So for me, it, it's really trying to appeal to, yeah, like a, a desire to see us uplift each other, to use your language. And And also in the context of pop music, I think, you know, I really wanted to, I think the reality is that, you know, a lot of us listeners of color have had to hear ourselves in pop music because so much of it isn't spoken or sung for us. So even though truthfully, you know, most pop music isn't for us. And, you know, universal is actually code for white. I think that we've had to imagine ourselves as, you know, the people who these songs are for. And I really wanted to write a song that was like, no, this is actually for us. This is a brown girl singing a song to other brown girls. And I'll never forget, I I sang the song in Toronto in a room of mostly white people and two brown girls. And one came up to me and she was like, this is the first time in my life where I have been in a room where a song was just for me. And I was like, yes, exactly. That's, that's exactly what I want to do. So, you know, again, the song sort of also just by being called brown girls and by addressing brown girls becomes another way to recognize and love brown women publicly. Yeah, definitely. And one of the lines that you said was one of my favorites where it's like the sister I've always wanted was me, but the ones I always needed was you. Like the power of just those words. I think what you're also saying about the mainstream being white is I laugh because I'm like, I'm so glad someone finally is like saying it like it is. (laughs) But it's also interesting kind of as an immigrant or like the child of immigrants to, you know, I was born in America, but I see around me like 
brown women that have either been born here or came here really young, like trying to assimilate and and the socialization by which that happens, right, is because of what you're saying, which is not seeing folks like us in songs and media and art and film. And working to change that is a huge deal. But I think it also that plays into that brown girl thing, right, of because we're trying to be like everyone else and not stick out and and therefore have erased so much of ourselves to do that. Totally, 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 totally. And, you know, the truth is like having a brown girl be friends with another brown girl only amplifies our brownness. And so in some ways it's dangerous, right? Like if you're trying to assimilate, if you're trying to get read or accepted in a white environment, the last thing you want is another brown friend, (laughs) you know? So like, I get it. Like I get where it comes from. And, and that's the thing is like, that song is not meant to be an attack because like, truthfully, like I understand I understand that feeling of competitiveness. I understand that feeling of, you know, vulnerability with another brown girl. There's there's a lot at stake at that intersection of racism and misogyny, you know. But I also think that, like, I'm really fortunate to have, you know, brown women in my life who, you know, were able to sort of, like, push past those challenges. And it's really enriched my life, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to waver from my list a little bit, like sure. what comes up for me as you're talking is like a question that you don't have to answer. But I wonder about for myself, I experience this a lot. Do you feel like a burden of representation to like, I know, like, <laughs> I mean, you laugh and I <laughs> like, I'm like, but like, just to, you know, for myself, I dress gender neutral, I dress masculine of center identify as a cis woman but folks don't know what to call me and I get misgendered all the time and then I I wonder like do I correct you do I not correct you and then if I don't I always analyze like after like should I have and then I come home and I'm exhausted and I'm like what I just went to like work nine to five like why am I exhausted <laughs> you know exactly. so I wonder for you you know you're you're putting all this work out in the universe and doing that work of giving visibility to folks that that need that and spreading this amazing message but like, how do you, how do you take care of yourself? Do you feel that burden? And yeah, any thoughts on that? I mean, I want to be cautious about using the word burden because I feel very fortunate to have any kind of interest and support in my work. You know, I'm not a young buck. I, I never showed up at 21 and had an audience. I like, you know, still the majority of my career, I was quite invisible. I would say that like, I didn't really have a lot of support or interest in my work until five years ago. And I'm about 16 years in. So I, I, because I come from like actual scarcity, I, I take like audience support and interest in my work, like very, very seriously. And I feel very grateful for it because it it was never sort of like handed to me right from the beginning. And so, you know, the word burden is one that I'm, I'm cautious of that said, I do feel a responsibility And I think that that's not a bad thing. Like, I do think that the reality is, I mean, the reality is we want to say that like the scarcity model is a fallacy and that like actually there's room for all of us. But like, I'm going to say something very unpopular, but I actually think the scarcity model is actually still accurate. And I think like MIA is like a really good example of that, right? Like, you know, here is like the like ostensibly the most like famous brown pop singer. And, you know, 15 years or 10 years since she's been around, there still really hasn't been 
another on that level. So, you know, I think that there are very few and that is slowly changing, but it's still not changing dramatically. And so, so there's still a little space. And so what that means is for any of us that do get in, I do think that there is all kinds of responsibility. Like I feel responsibility not only to be creating work that is representative, but I also feel a responsibility to like create avenues for other, you know, younger racialized artists to get in. And that's why like I have created like a publishing imprint. But to to go back to your question, I think that what I will say is on the flip side, sometimes I do feel envious of white artists who don't have or cis artists or straight artists who don't feel the same responsibility. You know, the example I love to give is like, I, you know, when even this page is white came out, I did a poetry reading with another white artist who got up and read a poem about their lawn blower. And I remember being so envious and just sort of like amazed at like what it would mean, like to have the freedom and the privilege to write a poem about a lawn blower. (laughs) Like the truth is like, you know, I'm proud of even this page is white, but like, and and i would say that it's art but it's also it's also my job you know like it's not it doesn't come from a place of sheer choice and again i don't mean that like an ungrateful way i know that like getting to have a book published all those things is very much like a, a privilege but like i at the same time like writing a book about white supremacy isn't necessarily my idea of a good time, you know, like, so, and like, seeing the kinds of things that like white artists are able to do, I sometimes do feel envious of what it would mean for like, and I mean, and this is in even this page is right, right? Like, there's a poem called A Dog Named Lavender. And some of the closing lines are like, you know, who would I be if I wasn't talking about this? What would I make if I wasn't talking about this? And so I think sometimes as an artist, I'm sort of like, yeah, what, what would I make as an artist or what would I talk about Mm -hmm. if I wasn't sort of like committed to sort of like, you know, to this idea of representation and like breaking down barriers for, for other racialized artists. Would you write about lawn blowers maybe? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned the imprint. This is also another fascinating thing you're doing. You want to just talk really quick about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to take up too much time because it is specifically for a Canadian writer, but essentially because of the sort of like lack of like formal mentorship I've had in my career, I really wanted to create like some sort of like intergenerational dialogue. And so I created like an independent mentorship program back in 2006 where, you know, artists from all over the world were encouraged to submit like an idea for a project and then an opportunity for us to work together. And I ended up like working with everyone who submitted because I was so moved by everyone's project. And so that instead of working with one artist for the whole year, I ended up working with one a month. And at the end of the year, in sort of reevaluating the mentorship program, I was like, you know, I think sometimes older people have this tendency to project onto younger people what they need. It's like the youth, they need support, they need mentorship. And I I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to make that mistake. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what these young artists that I'd worked with actually vocalized that they needed. And so many of them were like, how do I get published? And so I went to my publisher and I was like, can we come up with like some sort of joint program where I continue to offer this mentorship, but it's for one writer And I work with them for a year on their manuscript. And then, you know, a year later, they have a book published. 
and they would be racialized and they would be like between the ages of like 18 and 28. And my publisher said yes, which is fantastic. And so last year I chose a black writer from Scarborough and we're working on, on her book right now which will be out next year on my imprint. And we also have an open call for this year as well that just went out and the deadline September 1st. So for all of you American listeners that have friends, aspiring young writers in Canada, um, please direct them to vsbooks.ca for more information. Yeah, definitely. And we have a few Canadian listeners as well. So I hope I hope that they benefit from that. I mean, that's an amazing way to like embody the uplifting that you you portray in your art. So I just love that. I wanted to give you a chance to plug that. Thanks so much. Yeah, sure. I have a couple last questions for you. One is, can you talk a little bit about your upcoming book? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote a song on part time woman, actually, called I'm Afraid of Men. And, you know, basically, it was sort of coming from a perspective of like, you know, I think that one of the experiences that I've had consistently, no matter how much I've grown and changed and all the people I've been, whether it has been, you know, as sort of like a gender nonconforming kid that was then sort of like pushed into masculinity and then adopted masculinity and then now has rejected masculinity as a trans girl, the fear of men has sort of stayed constant. And so, you know, I wrote this song and and this book is sort of like a single essay that's coming out this fall with the same title that sort of explores exactly what I just said, the sort of my relationship to masculinity from a variety of different perspectives and sort of weighing in on suggestions on how we might reimagine other forms of masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious and excited to read that. I also, on the flip side, I guess for me, as I'm listening, I'm like, I wonder what my relationship with femininity would be and like, <laughs> right, and like yeah. performing it and then rejecting it, but still like embodying it in like a weird way. But that that's just a fascinating concept and I'm super excited to read it. Are there any other upcoming projects that folks can look out for and what's ahead for you? Well, in February of this year, I'm also in a band with my brother, my younger brother. We're called Too Attached, and we put out a pop dance album called Angry. And it's dedicated to people of color and sort of like touches upon some of the stuff that we've been talking about. And so right now, we've just sort of been focused on promoting that album. So uh, my brother and I will be going on tour here in Canada in a couple of weeks to play that album out. And that's sort of like the focus for the next few months is like promoting the album and also getting ready to release the book in the fall. And then I'm just sort of like find like next steps in terms of like future projects. But yeah, Angry and I'm Afraid of Men are kind of like my latest endeavors. That's great. I love Too Attached. I love that a lot of your stuff is on Spotify and on, on the website and is on like, I highly recommend folks to to check it out. Um, Thank you. I will wrap up with one last question. I asked this of all of my guests. What advice would you give to your younger self? I don't know if it's so much advice, but I really wish I had come into a politic a lot sooner in life. And I think that so much of that is tied to privilege in a way. Some of it's also tied in both ways. Like I think in some ways it was the fact that I didn't come into a politic is because like I grew up in a middle-class home that sort of like kept me privileged. But I also think the access to language and politicization is also a form of privilege that I didn't have access to. So I think both those things can be true at once. But I think just in terms of thinking about my art career, which we've talked a lot about, I think that, you know, I always sort of knew 
or imagined that quote unquote success is something that takes a very long time. And, you know, I remember like reading about Sheryl Crow and Tori Amos, like artists that I really like loved growing up and like how, you know, it took 10 years before they had any success. But I think what was, and so I sort of was like always sort of mentally prepared for, you know, the long haul, the slow burn, the long game. But I think one of the things that was missing in that analysis was understanding that there is a difference between white success and any other kind of success. And I feel like so much of my 20s was sort of like beating my head up against a wall and like really blaming myself, um, whether that was my voice, my aesthetic, the way I looked, you know, really trying to assimilate. And I think it's because I didn't understand that the thing that was hurting me was the fact that I wasn't white. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons when, you know, when MIA first came out, I actually felt like really envious because I was like, I felt like I, it had never occurred to me to be unabashedly myself. Like I, I had done the opposite. I, you know, really tried to assimilate and that hadn't gotten me anywhere. And here was this Brown girl that showed up was like super Brown. Like people responded so well to it. And so anyways, if if I had to go back to your question, if I could go back to the past, I wish I could sort of like bestow upon my younger self, a certain politic around racism and white supremacy as it relates to like artistic production and also just like really encourage myself not to assimilate, not to modify, not to hide, but to like really like spend those 10 years like digging into who I was. Yeah. That's a really good advice. I I mean, I wish I had that too. I also wonder, like I'm of the belief and I think I imbibe this from my mom, but I, you know, when you go through stuff, it's like always like, you know, the, the journey is what makes you stronger. Like I'm listening to you and I'm like, ah, oh, that would have been great for my younger self. But then like my internal mother voice is like, well, is it like also like going through that and going to the brink of like sanity or life, and, you know, <laughs> part of the, part of the journey and part of what made me like get to the point where I could reject that, you know, like, but that's great advice. And I, I totally relate to that and wish I had that too. Yeah, no, I feel you. I think it's just, it's tricky for me because I think that like I assimilated in so many ways. So like, you know, it wasn't just my race, but it was also my gender. And so now, you know, I came out as trans when I'm 35 and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not the worst, but like, uh, I, I feel like I have lost time. Like I, I will never know what it's like to be a 20 something girl with like elastic 20 something skin, you know, like, and I, I wish I knew, you know, like I, and that might sound superficial, but it's like, I, I really feel like I was sort of robbed of like my girlhood. And in some ways I really feel like I was robbed of, yeah, like time I could have invested in like really like learning more about my culture as opposed to sort of pushing against it. And again, I think you're right. Like, you know, it's the journey and I'm happy to be where I am now, but there is definitely a part of me that does feel sort of like a deep mourning for everything for the time that I lost in not being myself. No, absolutely. And that's powerful. I, I love that advice. That's all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you wanted to to talk about? No, this was so, so lovely. Honestly, I just like, I really loved the opportunity to like, yeah, chat with like another brown queer person. And like, yeah, I feel like, yeah, I just really appreciate 
your questions. So well, thank you. Thank you so much. Can you let our listeners know where to follow you online and on social media and stuff? Yeah, sure. So I am very Googleable. Googleable. <laughs> um, um, it's just my name. So V I V E K S H R A Y A dot com is my my website. And I really treat my website as sort of like an archive of work. I think that so much um, racialized and queer work goes undocumented. And I really wanted anyone to be able to come to like my website and be able to like see sort of like the body of work that I've created. So please feel free to spend time there. There's like lots of like free articles, free like music, all of my films that I've created are all like viewable. And then I'm like quite active on like social media as well. So it's just again at V-I-V-E-K-S-H-R-A-Y-A on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. I for, I love your website. I We didn't even get to talk about half of your work. So I'm glad that you archived this stuff. Like even I, I like I want to kill myself and all your films like so powerful. So I highly recommend our listeners to go check it out. I also love following you on Twitter. I think you're hilarious on Twitter. Oh, thank you. That's nice. <laughs> I also noticed, uh, this is like a guilty pleasure and I might have to cut this, but I noticed that you watched Wild Wild Country and changed your name to Manan Shraya, which I love. <laughs> like, I absolutely love, like, quick two se- two seconds thoughts on, like, Wild Wild Country. <laughs> oh my god, I am obsessed. Like, I'm haunted. In fact, it's so funny. I, like, today actually, I just got in the mail, like, Ma'anan Sheila's like autobiography or whatever oh and I'm God. just like cancel all my meetings like I'm not, le- <laughs> I'm not leaving I'm not leaving the house I'm just like I don't know I think for me I mean this is like a broader conversation but like yeah. I grew up w- with a guru as well so and that was sort of like existing around the same time in India so for me it was just like really fascinating thinking about similarities thinking about differences but also just like again like you know she was clearly the star of that movie like like the 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 younger footage and the like you know current footage and i just there was something about i mean again i think that she's obviously very problematic and did all kinds of like you know problematic and dangerous things but like there was something about like the movie closes i think the last line was like of course i love my power and yeah. there was just something so like I got chills just like when do we get to see brown women say that you know like I just love her assertion I love her confidence and you know I'm sort of like obsessed with with that part of her so of course I've like adopted her her name now is my Twitter handle <laughs> oh my god I, I, she is so captivating so I totally relate like I agree it's like it's like I hate that I like feel this way about you but also like I can't stop like I need you to keep talking and I'm so captivated by like her spirit and she's just like I don't regret anything and like she did an interview I think like a couple of weeks ago and or someone pro- did a profile on her and it was like they they framed it as like it was the basically everything that happened was like this giant love story because she loved this group, yes yeah you know? I saw that yeah saw that. so well and also hello her style like I just like <laughs> she's just like really charismatic really funny and yeah I think it also goes back to some of the stuff we we're talking about earlier just in terms of representation yeah. like again our representation of like brown women in like media and in pop culture and certainly like strong powerful brown women like to me it was just like yeah, it just was really, really inspiring and compelling. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, on that note, we'll call it a close. Thank you so much, Vivek, for being on Creating Daisy. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening. 